Welcome to Hollywood Remixed, a Hollywood Reporter podcast about culture shifts in entertainment. I'm Rebecca Sun. And I'm Rebecca Ford. Each episode, we do a deep dive into a single topic, a type of character or a type of story that has been traditionally underrepresented or misrepresented in pop culture. So for today's episode, we're going to be looking at Latinas in entertainment. And later in the episode, we'll be joined by Stephanie Beatrice, who's best known for playing the tough cop Rosa Diaz on the beloved comedy Brooklyn Nine-Nine, which will return for its seventh season in February. But first, we'll dedicate the finale of our first season of Hollywood Remix to Latinas, who are the most disproportionately underrepresented group of people in entertainment. So when we were researching this topic, we realized that the research does prove that the Latina representation has the greatest disparity between real-life populations and on-screen representation among all ethnic groups. In real life, one in five American women is Latina. In Hollywood, Latinas represent only 7% of speaking women on TV. A study from the San Diego State Center for the Study of Women in Television and Film showed that 2.8% of the 4,833 talking characters on peak TV in the season were Latina. So that is not representative of the real world society that we all see when we walk out our front doors in the morning. About two-thirds of the 1,200 highest-grossing movies from the past 12 years had zero Latina characters. Zero. There was zero representation. So it's not great out there. Not at all. And if you really want to take a deeper dive into those numbers, check out, as Ford cited, the San Diego State study, uh, which was on television, and the uh, film study comes from USC's Annenberg Inclusion Initiative uh, in conjunction with Nalip and Wise Entertainment. Now, there's another interesting study of sorts that came out. 538 asked a group of women to expand on the famous Bechdel test. And the Bechdel test, I think many people now know, is basically, is there more than one woman in this project? Do they talk to each other? And do they talk to each other about something other than relationships or a man? And if the answer to those questions is all yes, then you've passed the Bechdel test. There have now been variations of that, one of which comes from the writer-producer Ligia Villalobos. The Villalobos test looks at Latinas specifically. Her metrics are, is there a Latina lead? And is there at least one Latina character, which can include the lead, who is A, professional or educated, B, speaks English without an accent, and C, is not sexualized. And when that test was applied to the top 50 highest growing movies of 2016, all of them failed, including Sing, because Shakira voiced a sexy deer. And I don't know what makes a deer sexy, Ford, but... I don't know. There you have it. So, you know, I think it'd be interesting to sort of look at what sorts of roles Latina characters do have on television or film. Traditionally, we find that there's sort of two tropes. The first is sort of the maid or domestic help, where you have things like J-Lo in Made in Manhattan or even the very recent film Roma, or the sort of flamboyant bombshell slash sexy deer portrayal. (laughs) Um, You know, the Carmen Mirandas or even Sofia Vergara on Modern Family. And those are sort of the two boxes that these characters get trapped in. Exactly. And now we realized as we were conceiving this episode that we did not want this to be our token, 
you know, this is the ultimate end all be all episode about Latinas in entertainment. And after this, we're done because there is such a range and variety of characters and experiences within this group as there are within. And it it's hardly needs to be said all racial and gender categories in honor of our guest today, Stephanie Beatriz, we wanted to take a closer look at queer Latinas. And we found to our great pleasure that there really is, um, especially lately on television, a growing canon of, of characters. We'll start with sort of one of the earliest in recent history, which was on The L Word, which as we saw earlier this season in talking to Marja Lewis Ryan. Thankfully, the new L word is, is more ethnically diverse. Back then, the L word was pretty white, other than Pam Greer, Jennifer Beals, and Sarah Shahi's Carmen de la Pica Morales, who was a lesbian living in LA who dealt with disapproval from her very traditional Latinx immigrant family. Mm-hmm. And I think um, we thought of two primary examples of sort of the high school coming out story that we remember from TV. So on Glee, Santana Lopez, who's played by Naya Rivera, ends up falling for her best friend, Brittany, who's this cheerleader in her singing group. And they, you know, they even had a a couple named Britanna, I believe Mm -hmm. it was called. And, you know, it's a it's sort of a she has a really significant coming out moment on the show. Um, sort of realizing that she was a lesbian. And similarly, on One Day at a Time, the character Elena Alvarez, who's played by Isabella Gomez, also realizes that she's a lesbian and comes out to her family, who are mostly accepting, except her father. And there is a really tough storyline about her dad um, walking out on her at her quinceanera. And eventually he does come around, but you really got to see these young women dealing with this issue within their culture and their families. Yeah. And, you know, now the struggle of sort of your own personal awakening or the coming out is not confined to young people alone. Uh, Grey's Anatomy, which ended up having one of the longest running LGBT characters on television, partially by virtue of Grey's Anatomy being one of the longest running series on television, has, of course, the groundbreaking character of Callie Torres, played by Broadway turned screen star Sarah Ramirez. Now, Callie, if people remember way back over a decade ago, was initially introduced as a love interest for O'Malley. But she started a relationship of sorts with Dr. Han, and it was the both the first time that each of them had been with a woman, and she really struggled with being bisexual, but eventually comes to fully embrace that identity. She had a long-running relationship with uh, fellow Dr. Arizona, and Sarah Ramirez in, in real life has, has also come out. She's queer, and that has become a, you know, of course— a lot of melodrama and twists and turns, as is, you know, characteristic of Grace, but a stable representation of bisexual identity with a Latina character. And another show that I think has had a lot of great queer storylines is Orange is the New Black. But one that sticks out to me is the relationship that Daya, who's played by Dasha Polanco, has in the later seasons. You know, she at one time had a relationship with a male guard, but then um, as the season goes on, she starts a relationship with a woman, a lesbian who's named Daddy, but is played by um, V. 
Vicky Martinez. That is not her real name. She is also a drug dealer within the prison, and everyone <laughs> calls her daddy. And so they explored uh, a lesbian relationship at one point. Well, many times on that show, but specifically a Latina relationship um, in the later seasons on that show. Yeah. So that kind of brings us to, I think, one of the most recent installments, uh, the stars drama Vida, which is a great representation, first of all, just of Los Angeles and like all of the Latina people who live in L.A. in in real life. But Vida, uh, you know, one of the two sisters at the center of the drama is a very sophisticated and modern queer woman. That's um, the sister Emma, the older sister, played by Michelle Prada. But the other aspect of this show is that the whole premise is the two sisters reluctantly go back to Boyle Heights after their mom dies, and they realize that their mom was actually in a romantic relationship with her quote-unquote roommate, Eddie, and Eddie is played by the non-binary performer Sir Enzo Tegi, and I apologize for probably not pronouncing the name correctly, but that's two very different portrayals of queer characters within the same show. Both of them are leads, and there's like age diversity within that. There's, you know, sort of gender identity diversity within that. So um, this is kind of where we're at and where we're heading, which is really promising. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, what we're seeing is that TV has become this great opportunity for these LGBTQ Latina stories. And that's something our guest, Stephanie Beatrice, is going to talk to a little bit more right after this. So we're so excited to welcome Stephanie Beatriz to the show. She plays the cop Rosa Diaz on Brooklyn Nine-Nine, which NBC has already renewed for an eighth season ahead of its seventh season premiere, which will happen in February. Her film credits include Short Term 12, The Lego Movie 2, and the upcoming In the Heights, which is coming out in June. Stephanie, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. So... If you're just hearing that, do not adjust your dial. That is indeed Stephanie Beatrice. She sounds nothing like Rosa Diaz <laughs> in real life. I figured we should get that question out. Acting. First of all, um, how did you develop Rosa's voice? Uh, it is a funny, weird story. When I first moved to L.A., I had been doing mostly theater and saved some money to move to L.A. And my money was quickly running out because theater doesn't pay that great. And I had gotten a job teaching workout classes. And in the classes, I would get really pumped up and I would yell positive reinforcement because <laughs> I'm not one of those people that talks or likes like when instructors talking about like burning calories or food. That's not a way to motivate people, I think. But I would yell stuff like you're stronger than you think and you're, you're your own worst enemy and stuff. And I was losing my voice. And so when I got the audition for Brooklyn Nine-Nine, I originally auditioned for the Amy role. And then Allison Jones, the casting director, was like, I don't think you're right for this. Let's, why don't you read for this other role? And I kind of had a little bit of a sore throat. I didn't really think that much of it. And then I got a call back in the next screen test for Rosa. And so I kind of needed to make it something. So I tried to make it a choice. So you can tell like the sound of my voice is different in the pilot and the first few episodes. And then it sort of slides into what eventually became like the Rosa sound, which is 
totally embarrassing when you <laughs> go back and watch episodes. It's like, <laughs> I'm going to have to. Right. Because it's, you know, in a play, I would have kind of figured it out halfway through the run and then the audience would be none the wiser. But sadly, everything is captured forever in television land. So I get questions on Twitter all the time. Like, why does your voice sound different in the first season? And why my real answer is because I'm not <laughs> that great of an actor yet. <laughs> I'm finding my way into this character over the course of many seasons but that's where it came from it was a, it was a wrecked throat from yelling in workout classes it's like the phoebe buffet you know like sexy cold voice right, right. yeah right great. right <laughs> so we're gonna actually start by bringing you back to sort of the, your upbringing okay um i know you were born in argentina yes. and then moved to texas when you were very young and you're father is colombian and your mother is bolivian that's I have correct that right okay yes. so tell me about sort of being raised in that sort of mix of a culture and how that shaped your outlook. Yeah, you know, I, I actually grew up in a very, I guess, like Latin American, Caribbean, diverse community because when my parents immigrated to U.S., I was two. They moved to a small town in Texas right outside of Houston called Webster. And their community really became the people that my mom and dad met through church. Um, church can be a big touchstone in the Latinx community. And the people that they met were basically immigrants from all over the place. We had friends, my mom's friends were like from Portugal, from Brazil, from Mexico, from Guatemala, you know, like all over the place. And so I grew up actually kind of collecting a bunch of different people's cultural, I guess, like rituals is a word for it like around the holidays especially we would do sort of traditionally we would celebrate in kind of traditionally mexican ways like we would do la posada we would kind of take on these different things we kind of in in a weird way it's like a lot like i'm gonna do an acting metaphor but like when you're studying acting in school, you're learning all these like methods. And then essentially, you're, if you have good teachers, they say like, and now just choose what you want to make the thing happen. So essentially, that's what my parents did once we moved to the US. It was like, we're going to show you all sorts of different cultural things in the Latinx community. And now you choose what you want that feels like the most home to you. So I feel very American. But at the same time, I feel like Latinx, like it's just like stuff is in my blood, even though it's like maybe not technically, but it feels that way. You know, I like identify very, very, very deeply with Mexican culture, even though I'm not Mexican, but I grew up around it and and it was such a strong influence to me as a kid, in particular, like Mexican art and music. Um, I feel really drawn to so, yeah, I guess that's a sort of long answer to your question. No, that makes sense. I mean, I think you were really immersed in all of these different cultures in real life. Yes. I don't know how much, you know, again, in your upbringing, you were sort of exposed to or immersed in pop culture. But I was wondering if there were any pop cultural touchstones like yes, TV Haney. shows or movies. <laughs> yes. I mean, that's all I was about when I was a kid. Because at the same time, like, you know, I know I realize that I'm different, right? Like I'm growing up in a very, it was a really white community. My school system was very, very white. And so 
one of the ways that it felt best to to sort of try to fit in was pop culture. And like for me especially, it was like, you know, stuff like Seinfeld, for example, was for me like everything for a long time because my family only had, we didn't have cable, but it was in syndication by the time I was like 13. And so I was just obsessed with it, completely obsessed with it. And, you know, regular radio station music. So like anything that was on the radio station, I think our local was like Rock 101, KLOL. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, yeah, I became like instantly, and I used to get like Teen Beat and those magazines that had all the cute boy band guys in them. Um, I still remember when NSYNC dropped that what was that no strings attached album yeah. and i like mm -hmm. bought it as soon yeah. as it came out <laughs> i was so excited so yes pop culture is like and and it and remains so to this day honestly <laughs> was there ever a time when you were young where you like for me i remember seeing joy luck club and seeing you know these asian american women whose mothers had immigrated to the u.s and that was such like a key moment for me yeah. was there ever a moment where you either were looking for people who looked like you and had your experience in film and TV or when you first sort of saw that and that resonated with you? Know, you know, I remember the feeling of, oh, it's separate because we had Univision and Telemundo. And so I'd be clicking through the channels and the only people that I saw that looked like my family, that sounded like my family were separated into this other area where like, this is your channel. These are your stories. They belong over here. We don't mix and match. The only place there was some overlap was honestly Sesame Street, which was probably the reason I used to turn it on when I was way too old to be watching mm -hmm. it. But it felt comfortable to see Luis and Maria, you know, and then later Carlo, these characters that were Latino. But I remember feeling sad about the separation. And I distinctly remember, well, what about me? Because I'm not a Spanish speaker only. I speak both Spanish and English. So what about me? I do remember one of the first ways connecting with my mom over TV was a telenovela called Agujetas de Color de Rosa, which means pink shoelaces. Mm -hmm. And I remember we would watch it together and being like so excited that we could share that. But honestly, I remember mostly feeling sad about it, which is why I would like, Melissa Fumero has talked about this before, but I'd gravitate to these characters that like Elaine Bennis on Seinfeld, it was like dark hair, curly, yeah. right. curly dark hair. Yeah. That's me, you know? <laughs> right. That's why I felt so connected to that character, even though, you know, let's be real, the representation on Seinfeld is severely lacking. <laughs> <laughs> it's New York. I mean, sure, every first could have been. <laughs> sure. <laughs> well, speaking of New York shows, so when it came time for you to audition for Nine Nine, um, like you mentioned, you auditioned for both Amy and for Rosa, who at the time was called Megan. Mm -hmm. You've spoken about how when you found out that Melissa had been cast as Amy, you actually, you cried because you thought that automatically disqualified you from getting the other yes. cop role. Yes. You know, can you talk a little bit about that, that mentality of, especially among actors of color where like there can be only one, you sort of start to assume that. To be clear, I was very happy for her. Yes. yes. And when I, when I heard that news, I got really excited because I knew that it, they were going, they were thinking about casting a Latina because in the sides that I had gotten for the role, she was specifically that. And when she got cast, I was very, very excited for her. And it was about 20 minutes later that I sort of realized like, oh, right, that means 
that I'm not going to get that other role. Not that you didn't get Amy, but that you weren't that gonna I get wasn't going to get them. the other role because I, I knew immediately that meant that they were going to cast somebody else for the the other role. And and I think I held out hope. I kind of had my fingers crossed about it because I'd never experienced up to that point. I hadn't experienced someone saying, you know what, you might be right for this other thing. I mean, the the actual audition for the Megan role was even a surprise because in the callback, in the screen test, I remember sitting in the waiting room and I try not to pay attention to what's happening around me because it, it can screw me up. But I remember kind of looking up and glancing around and then looking back down at my sides and thinking, I'm the only person of color in this room. And it might've just been the time period that I was in there, you know, like they might've had other people coming in after me or had before me. But I did think it as I, as I thought, like looked up and then looked back down at my paper. So yeah, I just, I think up till that point in my life, in the TV that I've watched and consumed and the movies that I've watched and consumed, it's like, if there's more than one, then they're family. Mm-hmm. Or if there's more than one, then the other one is a guest star and they're probably dating. Or if there's more than one, it's, you know, a very, very like the role disappears, you know, which often happens, you know, like these shows will tout like their diversity and inclusion. And then slowly they kind of like kill off the characters Mm -hmm. of color until what remains is a very whitewashed cast. And suddenly you feel bamboozled into watching something. So, yeah, I think like historically in American television, there have definitely been like these like jumps where like if you're looking at it as a as a graph, like it'll jump like and there'll be like a lot of shows with like any kind of, you know, fill in the blank, any kind of like underrepresented group. And then it'll dip again. But I had really never seen anything with an ensemble that's like you know, a core ensemble, not not a huge ensemble, like something, for example, like The Office, where, yes, there were lots of people of color, but the main core storylines often centered around white characters. So I had just never seen something with a small ensemble like that that was going to, and I thought like, okay, well, they have a black captain, they have a black sergeant. There's now a Latina romantic lead of this show. They're not gonna squeeze me in anywhere. And so I cried. Yeah, I cried. I had a good, hard cry about it. I remember sitting at the table in my living room at the time and like really crying because I just felt like we're not there yet where they're going to do that. And then lo and behold, they did it. And I was probably more shocked than anybody. (laughs) I couldn't believe it. I still can't. So obviously Brooklyn Nine-Nine proved that wrong, you know, and and has really focused on this small ensemble that is really diverse. But do you feel like this idea of there can't be more than one still exists in Hollywood today. Yeah, mm-hmm. I do. Um, I think if you, I mean, I think especially in movies, I think television is changing in leaps and bounds. But I I think especially in film, there's still this like, there can't be more than one. And it creates a f- sort of mental scarcity, especially for people of color that are all sort of gunning for this one role. And it creates a competitiveness and there's already competitiveness in the acting world because it does feel like, oh, she got that role or oh, he got that amazing thing. And, you know, I've heard people say before, I've heard it usually from older actors, which is like that person has the, has my career, which is like such a weird thing, a weird mental thing to think. But I understand where it comes from, you know, like imagine being just as good as you are at your job 
and yet born 40 years ago with no option to do the job that you are fit and good for. The frustration and bitterness that that would create in your heart, like how else could it be? Like, where would you put that? You know, like you'd have to do something with it. And so for some people, I think it comes out in not great ways, you know? I think the industry's changing, but it's really slow. I mean, like, it's really slow. It's really slow and it's really frustrating, yeah. I think I heard recently from, I forget if it was a writer or a director. So it's happening right behind the camera and everything. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, they, they'll say like, well, uh, we already have our woman or like, yeah. oh, we found an Asian, we're good or whatever. Yeah. Um, and I think it's really only the Shorniverse, the Mike Shorniverse or the Dan Gorniverse that is mm. kind of the exception. I mean, I remember when Brooklyn Nine-Nine came out and noticing that oh, there's two black men, there's two Latina yeah. women in the cast, and it's not a huge core ensemble, like you said. Um, I mean, it makes sense. It's a Brooklyn police unit, but, yeah. you know. It does make sense, but, you know, and this is not to knock the the brilliant actors that were on Friends, but, like, that's also so weird. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's so I I don't know of anyone that I know personally who's, main core friends are all just one type of person and and that show is set in new york city you know and like that's so it's so weird when you think <laughs> about it now but it was totally normal it was totally normal and the effects of that show are like they're still lasting you know Be especially because of things like streaming now you know like maybe the effects of that show wouldn't be quite as strong but now we have streaming so like that is a comfort show people turn it on and like it's reiterated to them that you know whether they know it or not like these are the kinds of people that are the leads of the stories and what's exciting about being part of Brooklyn Nine-Nine is now we hopefully will also be a comfort show so that people sort of turn it on as like background noise and and somewhere deep in the back of their mind they think too these are the kinds of people that are allowed to be leads all kinds of people Exactly. Yeah. You mentioned that um, the character that eventually became Diaz, you know, was not ethnically specific. Um, curious about after you were cast, how did you and the writers work together to develop her? I mean, her name changed. Mm -hmm. Megan, why did that decision come about and the other aspects that made her specific to you? You know, Dan Gore and Mike Sher were very flexible. The first time I heard about her name changing was in the screen tests for Charles because I came in and had like some chemistry reads with the people they were reading for Charles. And at the end of the day, they said, oh, we think we're going to change her name. I was like, no, I want to play Megan. <laughs> they said, we think we're going to change it to something kind of soft to sort of be a juxtaposition against the character's personality traits, which were already there. I mean, in the side, in the original sides, some of the original sides that I had were these like, the, what would become the Brooklyn Nine-Nine like flashbacks. And there was a flashback. And in the script, it said, Rosa's wearing a sweater. She's at a birthday party. She's opening gifts and says, she opens a gift and pulls out a sweater that looks exactly like the one that she has <laughs> on and says, who the hell got this for me? What is this piece of crap, you know? <laughs> And so like your her personality was already set. It was just a name change to better reflect who I am. But really like from the get, like our costume designer, um, Kirsten Mann was like very, very open to what I kind of came to the table with. Um, and I was very like, it's 
It's a lot of black. It's a lot of dark clothing. It's a lot of leather jackets because of the usefulness of leather jackets. Some of the only jackets that have pockets on the inside, as you all know, as women. I think I wanted her clothes to be like really utilitarian and full of hiding places for weapons. And they were really open about it. But I also was insistent that she has some like feminine tells, which to me are her hair and her makeup. Like she's always like, that eyeliner's on point, you know? Like her hair looks good and it's not a mistake, you know? It's like she spends money to get her hair cut well. You know, she takes care of her, you know, eyeliner or whatever. And so like, to me, it was like, well, if you have, you know, she's really into motorcycles, you're not gonna just like sort of not take care of stuff that's important to you. I don't know, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Like I think it, it was a collaborative effort building her. That's a good point. I mean, I think it shows that Rosa is like, I mean, throughout the show, and we're gonna talk about this later, but she has an active love life yes. throughout mm -hmm. the series. Yes. And so she's not a like, all business, no play. I mean, she just takes everything seriously. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh no, she like, I think part of what she needs is a sort of, I think it's become a detective trope on television, but I think it's a real one. And the detectives that I've talked to, personal lives are really hard to have because you're dealing with like a lot of dark stuff and you don't really have a way to share it unless you are the kind of person that goes to therapy, which, Unfortunately, not a lot of detectives do, the, at least the ones that I've interviewed and talked to. I think that the way that she kind of gets it out is she, I don't think she goes home a lot. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, I think she has a I wouldn't say like she has a drinking problem or anything, but like I think she hits. I mean, like I think she hits Shaw's bar a couple times a week, you know, but that's just like character work that you'll never, ever see on the show. <laughs> right. That's stuff that I think about. And we've obviously talked about how diverse this cast is. I'm curious what the writer's room looks like now and also how, what kind of input you give them, um, you know, when it comes to who Rosa is and shaping her. Uh, they're very open to us sort of asking or nudging, but at the same time, especially because this season was so short, it was only 13 episodes, they really had an arc of where they thought it was going. And so stuff became really tight. I think one of the one of the benefits of having been on a show for this long is that the writers are starting to, especially ones that have been there for a while, for example, like Justin Noble, who is a writer on our show who co-wrote the episode where Rosa comes out to her parents. Um, Justin is out, he's gay, he's a gay man. Um, and so that collaboration on that episode was really important to me. Um, and it was important to Dan Gore and Justin and myself and, everyone really to have my input on that episode because none of the writers were by. And so they needed, they needed and wanted, I should say they wanted a voice in that space that was bisexual and that had personal experience with coming out as a bisexual person and the specificity of what that looks like versus someone else's coming out. I think like that's a testament to Dan in that there's a lot of spaces in which stories are being told and the people that are the most valued voices in that story are not being valued at all. And that's a really scary thing, you know, because like we are also in this time period where it's very exciting to tell stories that are new stories, but they're, they can be really mishandled because 
people get excited and they think something's hot and fresh and fun and and they're not taking into account, you know, for example, like, well, what does it mean to be trans in the world? And like that is uh, that for some people is deadly. And so to not have those voices be a part of that storytelling is just like it's a I mean, I don't know if I can curse on this, but it's a <laughs> fucking tragedy. Yeah. It's a fucking tragedy. Yeah. And and that's like really, really scary. I think this year the writer's room did skew more white than it has in other years. I don't know what the demographic will be moving forward. I do feel that our writer's room has something that I don't often see, which is a variance in ages and um, gender identities, which is nice. But I think every writer's room could do more. And the the tricky thing about those spaces, and I'm only speaking from what I've seen, and it's not, I'm not speaking specifically about Brooklyn Nine-Nine, but I think, you know, a lot of Hollywood is like about who you trust. And so you trust people that you came up with or you trust people that have shared the same spaces with you. So if you know people from school or if you know people from comedy groups, then those become the voices that you trust. And what's unfortunate is that once you start peeling back, well, like who's allowed to go to those spaces? Like who can afford to go to those schools? Who can, who got the education in in middle school and high school to allow them to make the jump to, you know, an Ivy League school, you know, whose family has savings that will allow them to help a kid live in LA and have a part-time job that's flexible enough to also take a bunch of comedy classes every week. You know, it's like, those are the things that we got to think about beyond just like, well, I like these people and I like their style. It's like, well, if if people aren't allowed to kind of grow and and grow within these spaces, like one of the best scripts I think we had this year was co- co-written by Nick Purdue. He was a PA. He's been a PA for a, the writer's room PA for a long time, I think since the beginning. And his script was one of the strongest, I thought, this season. And it was so fun to do. And he's been allowed to grow and take this like leap into, you know, what he really wants to do is to be a writer. And Nick is a black man. He's so funny and cool. And I thought his script, again, was one of the best because like he knows these characters. Like who who better to write a script for Brooklyn than somebody that's been reading every script, working on these scripts for now seven years. Like I'm very excited for him and his future and like, and yeah. That's an awesome opportunity. Very. So Rosa's coming out in season five sort of coincided with your public coming out. You Mm -hmm. know, again, I'm talking about like social media to like, you know, the general public. Um, How did that, I mean, was that a coincidence or was there something intentional about just even, even this development for Rosa as a character? How did it come about? Well, I think I like answering this question because it's fun. I think I always built her in my head as queer. I noticed things in the scripts, like there would be weird lines where she would say, like someone was attractive and it would be a woman, or there were lots of instances, and I don't want to call them Easter eggs, but there's a lot of like me finding Gina Linetti, the Gina Linetti character, just like charming as fuck, you know? And I think that there's, 
built into that, at least for me, was a little bit of attraction for her. And not like nothing that would, I don't think, ever go anywhere because Rosa's pretty like tidy at work. She doesn't even like to have friends at work. So all these friends that she has now are like very strange for her. So I always built it with that in mind. Then a few years back, I read an article. I think it was a bust article that Aubrey Plaza in the article, she talked about how she just can't help who she falls in love with. And she didn't specifically name herself as queer or bi or pan. But reading that, I thought, oh yeah, me, yeah, me too. I feel like that too. And at the time I was already out to a pretty large group of my own friends. Um, I was kind of out to my parents, but we really hadn't discussed it. I was out to my close friends, anyone that I dated, I was very upfront with them. And Twitter was still in its like newbie age yeah, to me. Yeah. And I really just had not been on it that long. And I didn't really understand the ripple effect of that kind of stuff, especially because I'm playing a character who the queer community had already kind of wanted to be queer. Like I had a lot of friends who were lesbian would be like, we want Rosa to be lesbian. We think she's a lesbian. And I, and I would sort of like smile and keep my mouth shut because in my heart, I knew that she does date everybody, anybody that she wants to. There's that great line where she says, like, I don't ask people out. I just tell them where we're going. Yeah. And she never says dudes, right? She says, I don't ask people out. And I remember wanting that to stay specifically. So, yeah, I publicly came out. And then I got a lot of questions about Rosa being queer. And I was like, I can neither confirm nor deny. And then Dan Gore, bless his heart, gave me a phone call. I think we mentioned it on set or something. I, like, kind of casually tried to drop it. Like, I would really like it if... And then he called me when they were planning the next season. They were having meetings with all of the actors and sort of talking about what direction they wanted things to go in. He said, how would you feel if we had Rosa be bisexual and come out on the show? And I was thrilled. I remember where I was. I was in the Americana parking lot. Like I just parked my car, my little Honda, and I was like sitting in the parking lot, like trying to make sure that I still had service. He was like, this is what I think we want to do. And we really want to talk to you about it. We want to like ask you what your own experience was, if you feel comfortable sharing any of that or having that on the show. And I said, yes, 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 yes. Because I'm such a specific person. I'm Latinx and I'm queer and I'm an immigrant. And so for me, like the 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 things that I hear in, in that community about being queer and about being bisexual specifically are things that I really wanted to sort of highlight in the episode. Things like, well, you can still marry a man, so it's going to be okay. Or well, bisexual isn't really a thing. What is that? Or just like plan ignoring it, which happens a lot. It's like, well, we just don't talk about it. We just pretend it doesn't exist. The thing that I think Dan really wanted to do, mad props to him, was not have it be like this clean and tidy you know, didn't want it to be like, now she's kicked out of the house, you know, because like it's not an after school special and like right. it's a thing. People are queer. But also like this isn't an easy thing for her family. It's actually kind of difficult. And it's so difficult that she's told like this bonding event that we do all the time, this game night that we have. We don't want to do that with you anymore. Your mother needs space from you because of who you are. And like that's really an intense thing to feel. And we wanted to have all of that while maintaining a situation comedy vibe. And I think they did a really good job. I, I was really, really proud of that episode. And I was also proud that 
I was also really proud that like the first time that year she's by was in the 99th episode, which was a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. Big deal. And like that doesn't get talked about as much, but like, and for her to come out the, for the first person that she comes yeah. out to be Charles. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like what growth in their relationship. <laughs> like really cool. Really, really cool. So when it came to writing those episodes, what were sort of your main priorities about how bisexuality was portrayed in those? I definitely knew that, you know, most of the time, historically, bisexuality and pansexuality in media and television and film has been like super oversexed or were like the villain of the story. So that wasn't going to happen anyway, you know, because we're dealing with a, a ensemble that the audience has known now for four seasons at that point, five seasons. So that was very reassuring to me. The other thing that I knew that I wanted was the word bisexual, not just like a kind of wishy-washy, like now she likes girls, you know, a very confirmed from the mouth of this person and then from mouths of other people, this word. And, and I've also talked about like, I think now, if I was a kid now and sort of finding my way, I might call myself Pan. But because of the time period that I grew up in and the experiences that I had and the first time that I heard the word and really felt seen for the first time or like I felt I knew myself, I wanted that word to be the word that I use in my own life. And I think Rosa wants that too. And it was important to me to have that word in there. And like the first time that I saw the script and I saw the word on the page, I almost cried because it felt so real it was like there in black and white and I was really gonna say it on network tv and like everyone I know is gonna watch it you know <laughs> like it was really that was very exciting and really really important to me it sounds like I mean I think it's evident from what you've been saying that you do choose to take on a sense of responsibility for representing both the Latina and queer communities and specifically both at the same time you know, to be both Latina and queer is a very specific experience. Yes, it's with very it. specific. I mean, it's also like whether I choose it or not, the responsibility will be thrust upon mm -hmm. me just literally for existing. You know, as the three of us know, being a person of color, being a woman of color, it's like suddenly you're just, you just are, you exist in the space and you're different. And then it's like <laughs> everyone's looking at you, you know, and you can... You can deny that that's the reality, but I think that's kind of a waste of my time. I'd rather try to explore, like, what can I do in this space to, you know, show that, like, I understand that people are looking, you know? I don't think that I speak for everyone. I would never even presume to speak for the entire Latinx queer experience. Absolutely not. I can speak to my specific experience, one of the things I think about a lot is that a very specific experience can be universal. And I know that sounds kind of backwards, but like you think about Hamlet and I picked this quote up and I'm just like paraphrasing it, but Hamlet is a very specific story. It's a prince of Denmark whose father was murdered by his uncle who's got like maybe some mommy issues and like definitely some daddy issues. But essentially, like while he works it out, he's working out whether or not like is life worth living 
Like that's what he's really working out, like to be or not to be, you know? And it becomes this like everybody in that audience just gets like sucked into this very specific story. And then when he dies, it's always a surprise. Like, <laughs> but you know he's gonna die. Yeah. And then like you cry about it and you're like, why am I crying? I know this story. And that I think is like what it means to be an intersectional person right now and especially like an intersectional person on TV and and or be in the public eye in, in any way, shape or form. It's like if I can speak to my specific experience and it might help someone else or it might do something or it might, you know, it maybe – I don't know, maybe like in 50 years, it'll like shift a landscape and and something that I could never even, something bigger than my wildest dreams will have happened just because we, you know, talked about this thing on a TV show. And it doesn't even have to do with me. It's just like, what are, again, like what are the ripple effects of that gonna be? I don't know, I can never know, you know, which is also very exciting. Well, on that note, what have been some of your favorite like fan interactions or reactions to your character uh i think like it's really really sweet and and very moving to me when people come out to me yeah wow it's amazing um it makes me emotional every time like it it feels very special and and that they feel like they know me so well that they can talk to me about like I'm planning on telling my mom and dad or I told my mom and dad or, you know, I told my husband I have a good friend from high school who has sort of as an adult kind of come to this realization within herself that she's bi and like she's in a long-term monogamous straight presenting relationship and yet she's really figured this thing out about herself and it makes her feel more herself and like that's so cool you know it's so special to be a part of that and then also just you know like this year especially during halloween it was shocking mm -hmm. to me how many people dressed up as rosa yeah that's so cool it was wild i mean thank you instagram for that new thing where you can tag people in your story and then they see oh, yeah. it yeah, yeah i was yeah, like yeah. what is happening right now this is crazy it's great that's really crazy that someone like likes and admires the character that i've helped create in so much as they'd like to dress up like her and channel their own part of themselves that is her it's really cool i mean like i said it's a good look to rock you it's know what i mean <laughs> it's very flattering so now shifting gears to another role we'll see you in yes. soon you're gonna play carla in, yes. in the heights which is pretty different she's another new york latina but <laughs> yes. very different from very Diaz. different um tell us a little bit about landing that role do you have a musical theater background you know what was that like i i went to i went to college to study theater there was some musical theater in there i played velma kelly in our production of chicago my senior year it was like my last big role um and i i have danced since i was a kid um not like super intensely or anything, but I was always on. In Texas, we have a lot of drill team, which if you Google it, you'll see it's like we wear hats, we have boots, we <laughs> dance uh, halftime at football games and it's like a big deal. And it's not just like kick line or flags, it's like real dancing. And then when I moved to LA, I was like very lacking friends because I just didn't know how to meet anybody. Some of them came through my workout classes. And then I got together with this group of girls who had created a dance team, like a comedy dance team. I ended up not being able to do it because the time 
it was like having a part-time job. It was like 20 hours a week. And I was like, I can't. I got a, a real job over here that I got to do. But it sort of brought me back to like this real love of dancing. And then, yeah, the audition kind of came. <laughs> I, Melissa Fumero, I was, was in the van, like the transpo van with her. And I saw that I had an audition. And I turned to her and I was like, what the fuck is this? I'm not going to audition for this musical. <laughs> I'm not a singer. I'm not a dancer. And she was like, you better audition for that. You absolutely better. Stephanie, you better audition for it. And I was like, why? I'm just going to go in there and like be embarrassed and hate it. She was like, you need to go in. You need to go in. And she, rightfully so, she like pushed me to audition for it. And then um, I'm, my husband is good friends with Ryan Cabrera. And Ryan has a voice teacher named Eric, who is absolutely brilliant. Um, so I had a couple sessions with him and we worked on the song and like he he's really brilliant. Eric Vitro, he like the way that he talks about singing, it just takes it away from being like this performative thing and makes he he's able to hook into the acting part of it. And that part to me was like it was so helpful and so freeing. And I stopped being so nervous about my the sound of my voice and focus on the story that I was trying to tell. And I went and, you know, I did the initial audition with just the casting director and a camera. I wore my Jordans. It, it went really well. <laughs> uh, and then I had a call back and John was there and a couple of the producers and John M. Chu, who directed the film. And um, I didn't fuck it up too badly. And <laughs> then it was a waiting game. And then they were like, well, we're trying to figure out the mix of like, who's going to be who. And I was like, well, there's only two of them. Like, it's just Danielle and Carla. And they were like, no, there's another role too. I was like, oh no, what's going to happen? <laughs> um, and I think that that, that was a, a tricky mix because it was like, well, who's going to fit in right together? And then we were cast. It was myself, Daphne Rubin Vega and Dasha Polanco, who are both absolutely brilliant, hilarious, wonderful human beings. Yeah, it, and it was like a whirlwind because it was like you're cast, and then you, you gotta go to New York for a dance boot camp, and I was like, "What? We're doing what? <laughs> I'm sorry, what?" <laughs> it was that was that was actually the most terrifying because it was a bunch of actors, like a bunch of actors, right? Like so, myself, Daphne, Dasha, and then Melissa Barrera, and then Leslie who plays Nina, and like. <laughs> especially for myself and Dasha and Daphne we're like we're in these scenes where we're surrounded by dance like professional <laughs> dancers and like they're teaching us these steps that we have to do and we're looking at each other like what are we doing like it was so I've never been more stressed I would I would go home from the rehearsal and then go in the building that I was staying in, there was a gym downstairs with a big mirror. And so I would go home and like practice in front of the mirror. And then I would wake up early and like practice in my apartment. I was like taking voice lessons while we were recording. I mean, it was hectic. I felt completely like I was drained and trying to give everything that I could because I knew that the people I was surrounded by were like people that had been studying dance their whole lives, you know, like really good dancers. But we did it. And we didn't fuck it up you and did they didn't it. cut any of our dancing. So, <laughs> I mean, at least I haven't seen the final, the, right. the final version of it, but I mean, we did the whole thing and they didn't yell cut. So I think it's in there. <laughs> we'll see. And obviously this movie, you know, is, is a Lin-Manuel Miranda joint, as mm -hmm. you'd say. And, um, <laughs> you know, so it's, funny. it's a predominantly 
Latinx mm-hmm. cast. Mm-hmm. So what did that feel like on set for you? What was that experience like to be on it a movie cool. like that? It was cool. You know, like I wanted to really take it in because like in a way the Latinx community, especially in the United States, but I think everywhere. Well, I guess I'll speak to just the United States. It can be very separate because and rightfully so it's like a mix of lots of different cultures and there's racism and colorism within the latinx community itself we all saw that during yalitza's uh you know oscar nom it was really shocking sometimes but also not and there's a a sort of denial or at least there has been that black people are even part of the latinx community so one of the coolest things about being on set with all of those people was that, you know, the idea of like, well, what does Latinx look like, you know? And we've been told it looks a certain way, but that's just not true. Sometimes it looks like that, but sometimes it looks wildly different than you could ever imagine, you know? And that that was what was really thrilling to me because I would look around at this sea of faces and they all identify as Latin, you know, they Latina, Latinx, and yet they are all so vastly different. And that's what's really thrilling to me about the idea that, you know, hopefully this movie opens well. And that means that lots of different kinds of people will also see that. They will see and maybe even be kind of confused by, well, she's not Latina though. Like he's not Latino, right? Like, because that's not what they look like. And that will challenge people to sort of think about their preconceived notions about what we look like and who we are and and how different the community really is, which is part of its, I think, magic. Mm -hmm. Looking ahead, what is sort of now on your bucket list in terms of types of characters or stories that you want to portray? And has that sort of changed, you know, over the years um, throughout your career and, and how you view sort of how you bring your identity into your work? It has, you know, I think no actor wants to get pigeonholed. I think there's a fear of like, oh, I can do it all. You know, like don't don't want to just do this one thing. But, you know, if I never play a straight character again, it's okay by me. You know, that means I'm working and playing queer characters and we need more of them on film and television. So like, that's okay. Like my mom says, that's okay. <laughs> um I think the thing that I've really realized is that I enjoy comedy much more than I thought I did. Um, when I started, it was a sort of point of pride for myself to say like, well, I'm, I come from the theater, you know? I've done mostly up until that point, I'd done a lot of classical work. I've done a lot of Shakespeare, a lot of American classics, a lot of Tennessee Williams and Arthur Miller and stuff like that. And And although I want to continue doing that, I think the thing that I think think I might be good at is both and that's really exciting because as you both know the comedy landscape has changed a lot and now what's considered a comedy is actually a drama with laughs in it and you have to have actors that can deliver both of those things and not everyone can and and I'm lucky because I understand them both I think in a dream world it would be projects that are contain both of those things, contain my real desire to do action stuff because I love the physical challenge of it. And then also period pieces because there's such a weird, like, (laughs) especially in American television or film, 
it's like somehow when we go back in time, the only people that exist are white people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or people of color you know, weren't invented yes. until or like, like if they were, they're they're like slaves. Yeah. And like those are the stories that we keep telling over and over and over and over and over and over. And while some of them are earth shatteringly beautiful, it's like time to talk about like well, what was what was the Puerto Rican community in like 1960 in New York like? What was that like? You know, and we never see it. Natalie um, Wood, just kidding. I mean, like <laughs> it's so like that kind of stuff is really exciting to me to like. And I and I think like I like playing a cop. I wouldn't mind playing a cop again. You know, I like it. I, I think it's really fun. Also, I think being a detective, especially like the idea of like trying to figure out who did something and this like dogged desire for for somehow like there to be justice served i mean like i listen to a lot of true crime podcasts <laughs> i watch a lot of true crime and one of the things i think about a lot is these detectives that will get these like cold cases where you know let's say i'm thinking of one that i know pretty intimately but there's this detective that there were like something like 15 latin black and indigenous women went missing in this one area and like nobody really cared because a lot of them were sex workers. And so, you know, quote unquote, they were high risk. They were living high risk lives. And this detective, and she happens to be Latina, she just wouldn't give up. And she still hasn't. I think she's like she retired from the force and then went back to the force because she was the only one working the case. She can't let it go. And I, I just love those kinds of stories. Like I think those kinds of stories are stuff that I'd like to kind of explore more. The drama. Yeah. I'd watch that. Yeah, Let's good. adapt it. Great. For it. <laughs> Great. Let me, let me work on getting the right. Um, so we like to end our podcasts with episodes with two theme questions. Okay. So the first one is called Hollywood Remixed. And it's what is one example of a Latina character? Doesn't have to be played by a Latina mm -hmm. actress. But from Hint the past, <laughs> from the past um, that you wish could be revisited or recast or oh. rebooted or remixed, I guess. Ooh, like a do-over, basically. Yeah. I don't know. That's a da that's a dangerous or a modern question. take on it. A modern take. Yeah, on. it doesn't have to be a calling out. Yeah, but you can Got if it. you want Got to. Hmm. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. That's so tricky, right? Because like. What's that saying that they say to kids? Like, you get what you get and you don't get upset. <laughs> because, like, I've played stereotypes. Like, I've done roles in which I literally had to have a red dress on and a flower behind my ear. Like the emoji. Yes, <laughs> exactly like the emoji. Because the lack of imagination, you know, within whoever created and then cast and then costumed. I mean, it's like down the line, right? Like, so... But I gave it my all, you know, and and part of why I gave it my all was because I knew that I needed that money, Henny, and I also needed those insurance weeks. So like, yeah, I'm I'm like reticent to call out any of it just because like, God, it's so hard to even get the job, you know? Yeah. So then when you get it, it's like, well, what do you do? Do you make it like, you know, I wasn't gonna that day on set, like kind of deconstruct like <laughs> colonialism and why right. this is all wrong right. but i was definitely not going to throw my head back and as i was yeah. directed to i sort of said jokingly i remember jokingly being like i don't think i'm gonna remember that with the choreography like <laughs> and so i didn't do it there's definitely like yeah 
there's definitely been times in my life where I wish the the creators had had more imagination about the thing that I was doing. And so I just tried to do the best that I could with what I had. Yeah. That counts as a call, a self call a out. A self call out with self compassion. Out. And you can Google it. I yeah. look exactly <laughs> like the emoji. <laughs> um, well, the second question is if that one's a call out, this is a shout out. Oh. It's called The Hidden Gem, and it's what other film, show, or piece of art portrays, you know, a Latina character that you just want to give a little shine to that you want people to check out. And let me just propose too, if you want to, because in our research, if you want to pick a queer Latina character specifically, because I realize there's a lot Mm -hmm. actually of wonderful portrayals, but it's totally up to you. That is a really good, hard question. Can I shout out something that's not television? Yes. Yes. Marcella Arguyo, I think that's how you pronounce her last name, is a stand-up that I find really amazing. I don't think she's queer, but I'm going to ask her. But she's Latina, and she's so funny. She's so funny. And and just like her being in that space, it's like I I just – I've never seen anyone like her. She's so specific. She's this like very tall, beautiful – like very um, aggressive comic, I guess I would call her comedy <laughs> aggressive. And she does like really kind of shockingly brilliant impersonations. And she's just, I just find her so refreshing and cool. And like, I just want to see everything that she does ever. Like I, I just want to watch everything that she does all the time. I don't follow slash know that many Latina specifically like stand-ups. I know there's a lot of them. Um, Angela Johnson obviously comes to mind. I think she's absolutely brilliant as well. But I think they're like Marcella is just like there's something so I don't know different about her. Like I I can't even like explain it. I highly recommend her though. Like watching her, I think she's so funny. She was like one of the openers for Two Dope Queens on one of their episodes, and like she's just like raw in a way that I don't. I feel like this is very specific, but like, I feel like if she was one of my cousins at like a family gathering, my mom would be like, you're talking to Marcella too much. She's a bad (laughs) influence to you. You know, like, I feel like she's like this very, she just like pushes away the sort of like, you have to be polite and nice and funny and cute and charming to be a stand up. I guess like, I don't think that that's a necessarily like overall thing. I don't know. It's like, You know, you think about uh, comics and women in that space and how they're treated and like, it's so bad. And then you see somebody like Marcella and it just makes you feel like, yeah, we're in good shape. We're in good shape. We're moving. This is moving towards something that I really enjoy. It's a perfect endorsement. Okay, great. Great submission. A-R-G-U-E-L-L-O. I believe that's just, I I just Googled it and people, you can Google her sets. She's great. I love her. Great. Well, Stephanie, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for us. having this me. really great. Thank you for your amazingly astute questions. I really appreciate it. Ah, mutual likewise. Thank you so much for hey. coming in. 
Thanks again to our guest, Stephanie Beatriz. You can catch her return on Brooklyn Nine-Nine in February on NBC and also on In the Heights, which comes out in June. Thanks so much for tuning in to the first season of Hollywood Remixed. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform so you won't miss our return with our second season in 2020. We'll have a slew of new guests and new topics to explore. See you in 2020 when foresight becomes hindsight. I don't know if that's your best work. Ha, ha, ha.